Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 193, A Wave Against the Rocks. Now, there's no new patrons since I last recorded a few days ago, and so let's just get right into it. Last time, the Serbs took Prilep before being halted by Ottoman resistance on their way to Bitola. They also broke off some of their forces to rush towards the northern Albania and the Adriatic. The Greeks took yet more Aegean islands, further solidifying their control of that sea. The Greeks also became a siege of Yanina in Epirus, but without the ability to fully surround the fortress there, little progress is being made. The Greeks also took Thessaloniki, beating the Bulgarians by hours, but were repulsed south of Bitola, opening up the way for the Serbs to take that city. Lastly, Bulgarian units rushing south to beat the Greeks took Nevrokop, modern Gotsudelchev, and Ceres, but failed in their main prize of Thessaloniki. Otherwise, Bulgaria rebuffed an Ottoman proposal to negotiate peace and began advancing towards the final set of Ottoman fortifications in Thrace, the Chitalje Line. So it's now October 27th. Now, the 28th and 29th don't seem to have any major events, though the Bulgarian detachment that lost the race for Thessaloniki did shift east to move kind of along the Aegean coast towards Komotini, not far from the modern Greek-Turkish border, where the Maritza River reaches the Aegean Sea. So, if you picture where Thessaloniki is, now they're rushing to the east. Otherwise, on October 30th, the Serbian forces requested by Bulgaria arrived to aid in the ongoing siege of Adrianople. I know I haven't said much about it, but I'm going to cover that siege in its entirety in the next episode, because there haven't been any sort of major events going on, it's just sort of an ongoing thing. Now, also on the 30th, Tsar Ferdinand received a formal request for an armistice through a Russian intermediary. This is precisely what the original Bulgarian plan for the war envisioned, but the scale and scope of the victories thus far provided by the Tsar's armies were such that he was now focused on taking Constantinople and putting himself in the history books as the man to, who led its return to Christendom. Indeed, he had already ordered a parade uniform for his parade uniforms for his royal guards, a state coach, six white horses, and the Byzantine emperor costume he had had made for a portrait a while back. So it's clear what's on his mind. Stephen Constant also notes that Ferdinand believed that taking the city would first get his excommunication by the Pope rescinded, and he believed that he actually might be able to organize a reconciliation between the Eastern and Western churches. So yeah, to say Ferdinand's ambitions were grand would be maybe an understatement. So not only did Ferdinand reject the peace offering, he also did not inform his allies about it because the Ottomans had only made this kind of offer to Bulgaria. However, by this point, the great powers, particularly Russia, were getting increasingly concerned about this war. The Russian foreign minister informed the Bulgarian minister in St. Petersburg to, quote, be content with San Stefano, Bulgaria, and do not enter Constantinople under any circumstances, because you will otherwise 
complicate your affairs too gravely, end quote. As I mentioned in the last episode, Ferdinand's dream of conquering Constantinople and becoming a kind of new Byzantine emperor was completely unacceptable for Russia. This shows Russia's attitude towards Bulgaria. Again, instead of viewing it as a, you know, potential ally gaining control of the straits, which would potentially open them up for Russia, Russia felt the prospect of tiny Bulgaria, you know, being someone they'd have to rely on for permission to travel through this crucial waterway to be utterly humiliating. So, yeah, the, the Russian ego kind of wouldn't allow the possibility of Bulgaria becoming more of a partner state. They could only seem to see Bulgaria as a kind of client state and a client state controlling a piece of territory that the Russians felt was so crucial for themselves was somehow worse than their enemies controlling it. The Russian foreign minister went so far as to argue that the city could only be held by Turks or Russians. Essentially, it was unacceptable for anyone else to control it. Again, implying that like the Russians would rather the Turks continue to control the city rather than the Bulgarians. And the fact that the Greeks are not mentioned in this, I'm sure would have been very upsetting had they been in the room or you know known about this quote at the time. Thus, by pushing to take the city, Ferdinand was taking a major gamble as Russia seemed to be willing to outright attack Bulgaria or at the very least encourage other great powers to intervene militarily if this were to happen. So taking Constantinople, yes, it opens up the possibility that you know Bulgaria can end this war as it pleases, but it also means opening Pandora's box. Now, Britain, for its part, was also deeply concerned about the prospect of Bulgaria taking the city. The Austrian ambassador in London reported King George V's feelings, writing, quote, were, to cross, were the cross to be set up on the dome of St. Sophia, then the Muslims would certainly blow it up, be it church or mosque. There would be massacres of Christians in Asia Minor, and Muslims all over the world would start agitating. All countries with Muslim subjects, which include France and Russia, would suffer from this. But above all, England. In India and the Sudan, I have 80 million Mohammedan subjects, the king added. End quote. Note, the king is using a very antiquated term for Muslims there, but I'm just quoting him directly. Now, Stephen Constant points out that the argument that Bulgaria taking the city would trigger, you know, a Muslim revolt in India is probably quite far-fetched. But it showed that while the great powers were very enthusiastic about the Balkan League victories in early in the war, that enthusiasm had very hard limits. Now, the Greeks, for their part, were understandably also concerned that if Bulgaria took Constantinople, that Greece's contributions to the war would be far too small to justify any substantial gains at the peace table. To remedy this, the Greeks were planning for their navy to actually enter the Dardanelles Straits to defeat the Ottoman navy and reach Constantinople themselves by sea. Of course, this would also have the effect of cutting off Ottoman forces facing Bulgaria in Thrace, because remember, all the other Ottoman forces facing the Balkan leagues are totally cut off from supplies and reinforcements by basically the Greek navy and geography. Only the Ottoman forces facing Bulgarians in Thrace can still, and have still, received substantial reinforcements from Anatolia. So the Greeks had this idea to, you know, rush the Dardanelles, take Constantinople. This should sound familiar to history buffs out there. But to do this, Again, much like the kind of Gallipoli campaign of the First World War, a landing would be required to take out the land defenses guarding the straits, 
Otherwise, you know, a ship moving through that bit of water is just a fish in a barrel. However, at this moment, there were not enough soldiers available for such an operation by the Greeks. Until the fortress at Yanina was taken and operations in Epirus concluded, Greece was unable to mount any such operation. Of course, they could have asked for troops from Bulgaria or Serbia, but in their minds, that would kind of defeat the whole point of them increasing their you know, role in the war. Meanwhile, as Bulgarian troops were getting into position to attack the Chitalja line, Serbian forces conducted or concluded an intense nine-day march through the mountains and indeed reached the Adriatic Sea. Hutton describes the trek, writing, quote, The region provided barely sufficient food for the inhabitants, whether man or beast, and there was little to spare for the invaders. The Albanians were naturally reluctant to sell food and starve themselves, while any attempt to requisition or seize food or fodder met resistance. The march was along narrow mountain paths with meter-deep snow and ice, many sliding to their deaths. Snow and mud sucked worn-out boots and shoes off men. There was little shelter from the icy blasts, with men having to camp in the open, even in snowstorms. Pack horses carried supplies, but the narrow paths meant that the beasts could be loaded only on one side, often with only seven or eight loaves, which left the men near starvation. Only when they reached the coast and Greek ships brought in food did the situation improve, end quote. So, you know, I, I talked about last time how incredibly difficult this terrain is, and this quote should give you an idea of why I said that. This is very difficult terrain incredibly hard for logistics, and these soldiers went through a lot to get over it, particularly with rather unfriendly Albanians along the whole way. Now, once they got there, Serb forces worked with the Montenegrins to take the port of Lege, and for just over two weeks afterwards, Serb forces moved south through Albania, eventually taking Duris, Tirana, and Elbasan. Side note, Elbasan is a really cool town with this amazing thousand-year-old fortress. I was there like more than 10 years ago, but visit it if you can. It's just one of the cooler towns I think I visited in this part of the world. Anyways, along the way, the Serbs were aided by Albanian Catholics and fiercely resisted by Albanian Muslims. The Serbs' army moved through the Lume region of northern Albania, and this sort of triggered a small uprising, which saw hundreds of local Albanians fiercely resist their presence. The Serbs responded with scorched earth tactics that killed hundreds, including massacres of Albanians who surrendered. But while the Serbs were engaging in brutal fighting to take Albania, the Bulgarians began two new offensives. One south through the Rodopi Mountains to reach the Aegean and the long-awaited attack on the Chitalja line in Thrace. Now, because of swampy land, the practical length of the Chitalja line was about 25 kilometers, mostly along a tall ridge offering excellent visibility to the defenders. It had 27 fortifications designed by German engineers and connected with buried telephone and telegraph lines for communication. Its defenders had recovered their morale and were by now determined to resist the Bulgarian onslaught. Those who weren't faced consequences, as 52 Ottoman officers were shot for dereliction of duty the day before the final Bulgarian attack commenced. The Bulgarian army, though, was extremely confident that the Ottomans were at the breaking point, though their own soldiers were being ravaged by cholera, 
which ultimately affected 17% of the entire Bulgarian force, and were suffering enormous logistical difficulties because they were 210 kilometers from the nearest railhead, meaning all supplies had to travel by truck, cart, or foot for that distance. And, you know, 210 kilometers is not a small distance. The commanding officer, Dimitriev, wanted to wait longer for the attack, at least until Adrianople was taken, as this would free up more soldiers and heavy artillery. But with the Ottomans pushing for peace, Ferdinand felt they had to attack now, before great power intervention forced an armistice. Hutin writes how, quote, Dimitriev also hoped his artillery superiority would wreck the defenses and allow him to support his perceived numerical superiority. The decision anticipated the mistakes of the early battles of the Western Front during the next three or four years and repeated those of Pickett's charge at Gettysburg 49 years earlier, end quote. So again, anyone who is, you know, a fan or, or is, you know, knows a lot about the First World War, a lot of this will sound very familiar. Also, like the First World War, there was nowhere to outflank. There were no fancy maneuvers possible. Again, the Chitalja line was flanked on one side by a sea and the other side by swamps and then the sea. So the only Bulgarian option was to simply throw themselves at the fortification after the artillery had done its work. And so that's what they did. The attack began at 5 in the morning on November the 4th. Misha Glenny describes it, writing, quote, It was the most spectacularly violent event of the Balkan Wars. Some 900 Bulgarian guns let loose their shells on the Turkish defenses, creating a dense fog of smoke and explosions on a front of about 50 kilometers. From the Derkos forest on the Black Sea to Chetalje, eyewitnesses described the force of the attack as resembling a mighty earthquake. The noise and the smoke was audible and visible 32 kilometers away in Istanbul, where panic seized the inhabitants. Christians and Muslims alike were convinced that the Bulgarians would soon be entering Istanbul to return Constantinople to the Christian world. Sultan Rashid, the puppet ruler installed by the CUP after the 1909 counter-revolution to replace Abdul Hamid, fled the capital. The first and last time that an Ottoman sultan ever left Istanbul under duress. End quote. So this gives you some idea of what this attack was like. You know, the, without a doubt, at this point in human history, this is the, the single largest, most violent event of the Balkans. It's, you know, probably the, the, the most violence that Istanbul has seen since it was taken by the Ottomans, since those famous Ottoman cannons you know, redefined warfare and showed what cannons could really do to even the greatest defensive walls of world history. Now, the initial wave of Bulgarian infantry did manage to take several hundred yards of ground before they were pinned by Ottoman artillery fire, including from several naval vessels in the Sea of Marmara. With no other choice, the Bulgarians pressed on in what one English observer called, quote, the most futile and wasteful thing he had ever seen in his life. End quote. You could imagine the waves of attacks throwing themselves at the trench lines of the First World War to get some sense of what this attack must have been like. On the first night, Bulgarian forces in the north attempted a bayonet attack in the dark, which did take several key positions. Had the Bulgarians managed to exploit the success, they may have overrun the entire line, 
but the intense fog and the confusion prevented such an exploitation. By morning, an Ottoman counterattack retook the positions and their line was restored. General Dmitriev ordered the attacks to stop by two, at 2 p.m. the following day. The Bulgarian wave, seemingly unstoppable up to this point, had finally crashed against the rocks and failed to inundate its foes. 33 hours of fighting had resulted in 12,003 Bulgarian dead, wounded, or missing, and around 10,000 Ottoman casualties. Now, this would pale in comparison to the 58,000 Allied casualties on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, where the front line was about double this battle, but these were still shocking casualty numbers for a mere 33 hours. Now, the reasons attributed to Bulgaria's first defeat of the war are not enjoying as much of an artillery superiority as in previous battles, uh, their army's exhaustion, but recalling the near impossibility of advancing against such well-prepared positions by more quote-unquote modern European armies two years in the future during the First World War, I think we can't put the blame on the Bulgarian officers or soldiers. You know, just the, the fact that even, you know, the some of the kind of best, most advanced fighting forces in the world would spend years trying and failing to do what the Bulgarian army just tried and failed to do makes us kind of appreciate how seemingly impossible this task was. Indeed, the belief that they would roll over the Ottomans as they had was also kind of understandable from the Bulgarian perspective. Bulgaria was not aware that Ottoman morale had recovered so much. And as I mentioned, the Bulgarians knew very little about the fortifications they were facing. Some speculate that if the Bulgarians had indeed attacked earlier, they may have won the battle. But Hall rightly points out that just getting to the Chitalja line any faster over the muddy roads of Thrace was basically impossible. Indeed, Hall writes how, quote, their victory at Chitalja rejuvenated the Ottoman forces. For the first time in the war, they had prevailed against the Bulgarians. The Ottoman command had performed the difficult feat of restoring discipline and confidence to their troops under extremely arduous circumstances. The Ottoman victory also heartened the defenders of Adrianople. End quote. Now he goes on to point out that, quote, at Chitalja, the Bulgarians were victims of their own success. Their campaign against the Turks had carried them to within 20 miles of Constantinople. Unfortunately, they were not prepared logistically, tactically, politically, or diplomatically to deal with the issues involved in taking and occupying the capital city of their enemy. This battle need not have been fought. The best policy for the Bulgarians at this point would have been to stop in front of the Chitalja lines while their army was still intact and accept the Ottoman armistice request. Then, they could have negotiated a definitive conclusion to the war from a position of strength. This is precisely what the Russians had done in 1878 when they stopped in front of Constantinople and negotiated a favorable peace at San Stefano. The Bulgarians should have learned this from their Russian liberators. Had the Bulgarians taken Constantinople, however, they would have ensured a peace on their terms. They also would have performed a feat replicated only twice in the history of that city. The temptation was too much to overcome. End quote. Now, there's a lot of hindsight in that analysis, but sadly, I think Hall is ultimately correct. Bulgaria had become Icarus, 
flying too close to the sun, and facing the consequences. For now, Thrace is settling into a stalemate, as both sides are unable to go on the offensive. The Bulgarians have lost a tremendous number of experienced officers, meaning its army has become markedly less effective as a fighting force, not just because of the loss of soldiers and things, but because of the loss of leadership. And the reality is that the experience of those officers is not nearly as easy to replace as an artillery piece or a rifle or even a regular infantryman. But the war is still not over. Far from it. In fact, the day before this Bulgarian attack started, the attack of the Serbs began as they concentrated on striking at the last remaining Ottoman positions in Macedonia, Prilep and Bitula. Both battles were conducted by Serbian forces, which on the one hand vastly outnumbered the Ottoman defenders, but were also exhausted by the fighting and the bad weather. In three days of intense battle, the Serbs mounted countless frontal assaults at Prilep, and here, weight of numbers and the relative lack of Ottoman artillery ultimately allowed this tactic to succeed, but at the cost of many thousands of casualties. Now, while fighting still raged at Prilep, the Serbs began their attack on Bitola, which they had reached eight days earlier and were just now assaulting. The Ottomans actually began the battle with their own preemptive strike, but this was fought off. Afterwards, fighting was intense, but once more, Serbian artillery arrived from Prilep and the tide began to turn. Soon, the Ottoman Vardar army was totally routed and fled towards Florina to the south and Berat to the west. Essentially, in south into what is now Greece and to the west and what, into what is now Albania. This victory really marked the end of major fighting for Serbia. Within a few days, their forces finished establishing control over southwestern Macedonia, including the historical city of Ohrid. As Ottoman forces gradually pulled back into southern Albania, uh, while some also went to reinforce the garrisons still holding out at Yanina, they finally left Macedonia after five long centuries. And by this point, the only Ottoman forces remaining in Europe were those in the fortresses of Scutari, Yanina, and Adrianople, along with those manning the Chitalja line in front of Constantinople and the last remnants of the Vardar army in southern Albania. The Ottomans were fully on the defense everywhere, but only the soldiers defending their capital could expect any reinforcements. So again, to give you some sense, except for those forces kind of in southern Albania, and again, those defending the capital, all the other Ottomans are in fortresses. It's, it's basically just a, a series of sieges and just the, the last remnants of these armies in southern Albania. But for all intents and purposes, the Ottomans have been defeated in the Balkans, except in front of their capital. Now, to make matters worse for those retreating Ottoman forces moving into southern Albania, on the same day the Serbs took Prilep and Bitola, the Greeks made a landing north of Corfu, where they joined volunteers from local Greek communities. So the Greeks have now kind of done a little end run around the bit of Epirus they have not taken and have made a landing in what is now southern Albania. Now, from what I can tell, the last southern Albanian you know, major settlement that still has not been taken 
by the Balkan allies at this point is the point, port of Vlore, which the Greeks were hesitant to take because it was very coveted by Italy. So again, you know, thinking, taking a momentarily step back, you know, the Bulgarians, in theory, should be hesitant about taking Constantinople because Russia wants it. The Serbs have to be very hesitant about establishing themselves on the Adriatic and expanding into, uh, you know, I forget the name, Prizren, because the Austro-Hungarians want some of those territories and they don't want Serbia to establish themselves on the Adriatic Sea. The Greeks have to be careful because the Italians want to establish themselves in southern Albania. Everywhere the Balkan allies go, they're stumbling upon territories that the great powers desire, and this means that the Balkan states have to tread very lightly. Anyways, so again, the port of Lora has not been taken. Granted, Duras and Tirana are still held by the Albanians and Ottomans, but the Serbs take those both within about a week. So, at this point, after the failure of the Bulgarian attack in Thrace, the leaders of the Bulgarian army urged Tsar Ferdinand to finally negotiate an armistice. Despite all his grand ambitions and his sincere belief that God was guiding him towards his destiny as a conquering hero of Christendom, Ferdinand saw the sad military reality and finally agreed. He requested the president of the Bulgarian National Assembly, Danev, to lead negotiations. Though Danev felt very awkward about this because he was not a soldier, and this wasn't so much a sort of diplomatic end of the war, this was negotiating a military armistice, which, yeah, as a non-soldier, he felt weird doing. But he would still, yeah, he would be in charge of generals like Savov and Fichev in these negotiations. So there would be generals in the negotiating party, but he would lead it. Now, Ferdinand argued that the reason he wanted Danev to do this was to balance those generals because he feared the generals might be too lenient with the Ottomans after witnessing the carnage at Chitalja, and so Danev was supposed to be a little more hard line. As a result, Danev ultimately agreed and negotiations began in a dining car of a train near the front lines in Thrace. And that's where I'll finish this episode. While Ottoman forces remain in a few scattered fortresses in southern Albania, the surrender of all these forces is basically a matter of time. The Ottomans have lost control over nearly all the Balkans. That much is certain. But with the Bulgarian loss at Chitalja, Sofia's bargaining position has dramatically worsened along with the state of its army, meaning the precise outcome of the war is suddenly wide open. Next time, we'll cover a little more of the war on the seas, what's been happening with the siege of Adrianople, Bulgarian fighting along the northern Aegean coast, a proclamation of independence, and the arrival of an armistice. But even then, fighting will remain far from over. You won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out much more at bghistorypodcast.com and the specific kind of blog post for this episode is linked in the description. There you can find a timeline of everything that happened, a list of major kind of characters, and from here on out, I'm also listing the major sources I use. So if you're curious to learn more, tons of stuff there, check it out and I'll catch you in the next one.